Faith matters. Assalamu alaikum. You are listening to The Voice of Islam, where we bring you Faith Matters, a program devoted to taking questions on a variety of contemporary and religious issues, where you, our listeners, set the agenda by the questions you ask. You can send in your questions at faithmatters at voiceofislam.co.uk. And if you have Sky Digital, this program is also available for viewing on Muslim Television Ahmadiyya, channel 787. Alternatively, you can open it up on YouTube. Go to YouTube, put in the words MTA Online 1, Faith Matters, the name of the program, and the question you're after. And if you don't find the answer right there, you know what to do. Email us on The Voice of Islam on Faith Matters at voiceofislam.co.uk. With that, it's my pleasure to welcome back to Faith Matters to regular panelists and established scholars within the Amdiya Muslim community. Gentlemen, Assalamu alaikum. Welcome to Faith Matters. Uh, very quickly, in terms of an introduction to my immediate right, of course, is Molana Yaz Mehmood Khan Sahib, who's a missionary here in the UK, and he's also part of the Central uh, Publications, International Directorate of Publications of the Amdiya Muslim Community based here in the UK. Welcome, Yaz Sahib. Exactly. To his right, Molana Abdul Ghani Jahangir Khan Sahib who's a senior missionary here in the United Kingdom, and also he leads the central desk for French-speaking countries uh, from here in the UK. Jahangir Saab, welcome to Faith Matters. It's always a pleasure. We're going to go down under for our first question to Australia, and this comes from Usman Mahmoud Sahib. Assalamu alaikum, Usman Sahib. There's much gentleman discussion about patriotism and identity. Indeed, we're having very much that discussion, not just here in the UK, but around the world. And the question is often asked for those people who may follow a particular religion. Indeed, that's exactly what Usman Saab's asking, that what are you? Are you of a particular origin, of a particular culture? Or in his case, he's often asked the question, are you Australian or are you Muslim? What would you put one before the other? Jahangir Saab, if I could start with you. I mean, this whole essence of identity, um, I reflect on our own personal experiences. I'm sure you'll very much resonate with what I'm saying is that I always find it quite odd when people say, you know, you may have this heritage or you may be of that faith or this nationality. How do you combine it all? I've never found it a conflict or a contradiction. You know, you don't sort of slap one cheek for being Muslim and another for being British. Actually, they're perfectly compatible. Yes, they are. And it's kind of, it's all part of your personality. It's mm -hmm. all part of your persona, what makes you, you know? Um, I would very much agree with your analysis there that um, if anyone asked me, for example, I'm of you know, mixed origin anyway, um, it would be very difficult for me to kind of, you know, unblend the different identities which I feel very comfortable with and which are part and parcel of my, my, my person. Um, but of course, when, we're, when this question is asked, there, there's, a, there's always a, an underlying reason. And I think the underlying reason is that, unfortunately today, there are people of certain faiths, including Muslims, who would uh, go a little bit overboard when they say that uh, we are um, loyal to our faith first of all mm -hmm. uh, and then to anything else including the nation we're living in or whatever. Um, but by that they mean that um, all their loyalty basically goes to their faith and they're, they're not ready to, 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 to concede anything when it comes to the nation and they're kind of always on the defensive and always you know kind of forcing the religious identity on other people, and that's very unhealthy. And this is not at all what's advocated by Islam. As we know, 
um, Islam tells you very clearly that uh, love of your uh, nation is part and parcel of your faith. Indeed. So this is a, a prophetic saying by the Prophet Muhammad sallam, peace be upon him. Um, and this is the, the, the motto that we live by. But having said that, we can't forget that first and foremost, we're human beings, we're creatures of God before we're anything else. Often if we, forgotten by people. Yes, I mean, we did not ask to be, to be born. Mm. We didn't ask to be brought into this world. We didn't mm. create ourselves. We were brought here by, by, by God. And we, by, it was total happenstance that brought us to this country or that country. We could very well have been in some other country. We could have been born in some other body. We, I mean, this is all mm. beyond our power. Um, so I think this is uh, probably one of the reasons why uh, in Great Britain in particular, and surely uh, in Australia that would resonate somewhere down the line, be, being part of the Commonwealth, etc., uh, where they've chosen to say for God and country. So they would not say for country and God. God comes first, whatever. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean, as you very rightly pointed out, that they're incompatible. On the contrary, our allegiance is to God first and foremost because this is the thing which is the most important for us when we leave this world. There will not be any Great Britain. There will not be any Australia. There will there, there will be God, mm -hmm. and that's eternal, for, you know, life. That's yeah. forever, you know. So this is the most important thing, but that does not need to conflict at all with our uh, na national feelings, our patriotic feelings. We can be great patriotists and still patriots and still, uh, you know, um, have uh, a profound link to God. So I don't think that's incompatible at all. But still, it's God first and the nation after. But uh, before I come back to Jangir Saab, I would ask him when England play France, who do you support? So, well, that, that, that's a test of your blending of cultures it and is uh, identities. It is a difficult one, though. So, so I, I suppose you sort of carry both flags and sort of keep both I'd, sides I'd, I'd play it safe and so I support whoever wins. <laughs> yes, yes I'm just picking up on Jangir Saab's on, you know, very valid points. And as I said, these, this issue particularly from an Amdiya Muslim perspective. I mean, when you look at the community's practices, if we could sort of perhaps focus on that, you look at the inherent pledges of all the auxiliary organizations of the Amdiya Muslim community. You look at the tradition of national conventions, be it of the community or the auxiliary organizations. One thing which I remember very poignantly from a very early age is that alongside the standard, the flag of the community, you will always see the national standard of whatever country you're in. Uh, flying very much proudly and indeed protected and given the guard of honour that's uh, also extended to the actual community flag, which again instills in you again this issue of there's no conflict, it's a compliment. Absolutely, and I think you very validly point out that um, it, th there is no contradiction whatsoever. Um, and uh, whenever we, I, I remember even um, to this day, ever since I've been coming to the programs of the community, whether it's uh, of auxiliary organizations mm -hmm. or others, um, this point is hit home very clearly that we are citizens of the country in which we live in and we love the country that we live in. And the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, also taught this uh, even from his own time. Uh, many people used to raise the objection against the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, the founder of the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, that uh, the promised Messiah overly uh, uh, praises the British government, which was present in India at the time. And the promised Messiah, peace be upon him, said that God the Almighty teaches us through the Holy Prophet, 
Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, said that those people who cannot be thankful to individuals, to human beings, cannot be thankful to God Almighty. And so since I live under the British government in India, and the British government gives me so many freedoms. They give me freedom of religion. They give me freedom of conscience. They give me, they allow me to preach my message, which I believe to be true, in such a way that I think in certain Muslim countries I wouldn't have even been given that freedom. So there is no way that I cannot praise them and be loyal to them. And the Promised Messiah's life was all a wonderful example of how he. As Jahangir Sahib said, God takes precedence over everything because that is our creator. He is our creator. But to be, to give precedence to God does not mean that we should be treacherous or disloyal to the country that we live in. To be loyal to the country that we live in is also a religious obligation upon Muslims. And that's why the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, said that loyalty to country is part of your faith. And even in our community events today, uh, in the pledges that we say, at the, for example, uh, in our auxiliary organizations uh, programs, we mention, we state this, that I shall be loyal to my country and nation. Mm -hmm. And that exactly is uh, according to the, the religion of Islam, and it should be the the principle of all religions for that matter. Uh, to benefit from the good graces of uh, a government or the, or the country that we live in and uh, try to uproot it underneath uh, and say that this is my religious obligation is quite contradictory to the teachings of Islam. Islam does not teach this. I mean, quite often I know in my own travels, particularly to the Muslim world, I, I say with a degree of both pride and humility, if we can, you know, there's sometimes you know, two sides of the same coin. I'm proud of the fact that we live in a country where actually I'm proud to be a Muslim and actually it's one of the best places in the world to be a Muslim for exactly the reasons you articulated of about freedom of belief, freedom to practice, propagate and profess your faith, which often in these conversations are forgotten because people just accept it as the norm. Yeah. Yet and it's also a, the opportunities that mm -hmm. are offered Indeed. in this country, you know, they, to rise to any, any level, you know, which is that, very laudable. Um, just if I may, Jangi, stop staying with it. Uh, Usman Saab's got two questions. One was, I, I suppose, more generic in that it could be applied to any country of the world. But then the, the second question is a real down-under question. It's probably uh, reflective of some of the, at times when we see the Rugby World Cup, for example, or indeed other times where New Zealand maybe, although well, I've never <coughs> seen their cricket team, and do they perform these? He's, of course, referring to their Maori dance, the haka, which is performed at the start of the game, and I am sort of quickly going through my memory here as to whether I've actually seen the New Zealand cricket team perform such dances before their uh, games, but certainly the rugby team is uh, yes. quite well known throughout the world. There are other teams as well which uh, yeah. do it. I'm not sure about the cricket one. Yeah, I don't think the cricket but one. But it's a cultural it be cricket, thing, isn't it? it? Yeah, it's, a <laughs> it's a gentleman's thing. game, as, uh, as the English would say. But we, <coughs> if I could just focus in on that, because that's uh, Osman Saab's second question. It's become, as we all recognize, and whatever the historic traditions behind it is now very much recognized as a symbol of New Zealand. It's a, it's a form of respect sometimes when dignitaries may visit. It's a form of exhibition and display of part of their cultural heritage to people when they visit. And indeed, as I said, um, at a time of competitive rivalry, you often see the New Zealand All Blacks are actually performing this uh, ritual before their actual game to somehow, I, I suppose, intimidate the op opponents and, uh, and actually instill in them a 
concern or a fear of what's expected. Um, Osman Saab's really asking a question. I mean, you know, from a religious standpoint, how valid would it be to participate in such activities? Because this is a form of national heritage and would Islam allow for it? And I suppose more generally, if we were to widen it, I'm sure we can find other examples in the world as well where history and tradition may perhaps not be totally in, in line with uh, what one would perceive as normal practice because Islam being a religion of peace and this is perceived as a dance of confrontation. You see the general principle in Islam is, and this is one of the reasons why Islam has been so, so um, successful wherever it's uh, been implanted in the world, mm is that it usually, until very recent times with the rise of extremism, unfortunately, and very narrow views within you know, certain circles within Islam, mm -hmm. which, which are unfortunately very widespread these days, um, it, it usually adopts you know, um, local cult culture as its own. Mm -hmm. And it's because it's a very fluid thing. There is obviously a culture which is, which is taught in Islam, but it's kind of a template which can be positioned over different cultures, you know, and it can work very, very well. And this is a point which uh, many Christian missionaries picked up on in Africa in particular. And they said that, uh, in their opinion, Islam is a natural religion for, for Africans because it uh, absorbs so many aspects of the local culture and makes them its own. Whereas Christianity has been quite rigid until very recently. but. Until recently, um, Christianity was much more rigid compared to Islam. Now, having said that, coming more specifically to the question which has to do with the Hakka in, in New Zealand, um, any aspect of culture, of the Maori culture in New Zealand, which wouldn't be in conflict with Islam, would of course be something which could be taken on board very happily, you know? And not forgetting the fact that we're not talking of alien people adopting a culture. We're also talking of people who are locals, mm. who become Muslim. Mm -hmm. Now, how, the question is, how much of their own culture do they have to do away with mm -hmm. to become Muslim? There are obviously, there is some cutting and pruning which is going to have to be done, inevitably. Mm -hmm. And this will apply to all nations, wherever Islam goes, there's going to be something you'll have to, to let go of. And also you'll be gaining a lot because you're getting, you know, Islam and all the baggage of uh, culture which comes with it. But when you come to, um, to actually look at the Hakka, uh, you'll see that uh, there are different forms mm. of Hakka, first of all. What's also known by people who follow rugby is that there are different types of Hakka within the Polynesian islands. And I think because of the All Blacks, it's generally recognized. Uh, some of the smaller islands, you know, they've kind of, it's kind of uh, motivated them to bring their style of uh, war dance to the fore. And so you'll see them, show, you know, the standoffs you know, between them, uh, where each one will show the... The Western Samoa and... For example, yeah. yes, Hawaii as well. Um, they call it Ha'a in, uh, in Hawaii, actually. Okay. Yes, the K is replaced by the, the guttural stop. But anyway, um, the, the kind of original thing is, is quite different from what you see yeah. today. There's a more ancient form, which is considered the more, more benign one today, which is called the Kamate Haka, which still translates as you die the Yudai Haka, or it's death Haka. I mean, people interpret it in different ways. Um, but then you have the one which is, which is uh, kind of in, um, uh, created specifically for the All Blacks, mm -hmm. which is, the, as you know, the national rugby team in, uh, in New Zealand. And that's called the Kapao Pango Haka. 
And all it means, Kapapangram just means the All Blacks, basically. Okay. But it does, it does include certain um, gestures which are internationally recognized mm. as very violent. Mm. And it uh, does include severing certain body parts mm. in gesture, of course. Mm. Um, but basically, it's interpreted by people watching this who are not of a Maori background as we are going to do this to you, mm -hmm. you know. And so it, it, draw, it drew a lot of criticism from different circles um, in all over the world, actually. And uh, in particular in Europe, in France and Wales, um, uh, there was a lot of criticism. And th they were actually requested to remove certain um, gestures out of the repertoire. Uh, in Turkey, they, ha they actually had to have a meeting with the people there to explain what all the gestures mean, because some of the gestures were insults in Turkish culture. Mm -hmm. And so there is this kind of a, a difficulty which is born out of some of the gestures. But we have to remember that at the end of the day, this is a war dance. It's not mm -hmm. like an invitation to a cup of tea. Mm -hmm. So obviously it's something aggressive. Mm -hmm. And we have to then, uh, our youth in our, our community, the Ahmadiyya Muslim community, have to kind of reflect on that and think what do they want to portray when they're meeting their adversaries in sport, you know? Are they going to go for fair play and, and you know, good sportsmanship and all that, you know, all those British values, mm -hmm. you know? Um, or are they going to be aggressive and are they going to kind of show violence towards them even before the game has started? So my take on this would be that if you want to preserve this culture to some degree, maybe you need to invent a new variety of haka, which is maybe without those more aggressive gestures there. If it's just a show of strength, I think nobody would have any qualms with that. Mm. But if it's something which is showing that, look at the things we're about to do to you, then I think that would probably have to be revisited. That's all I can say really on this. Jazakallah, yes. gentlemen. Although I think with New Zealand, and uh, they need no extra show of strength with uh, their sort of performances on the rugby field. It's yes. very clear. Um, well, how, when you look at the players, are. I mean, the, exactly that, they that, speak that. for themselves, <coughs> don't they? Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Gentlemen, Jazakallah, thank you for that. And my thanks also to Osman Mahmoud Saab for his questions. We're going to travel to another continent, uh, to North America, to the United States, for a question from Ahad Ahmed Khan Sahib. Assalamu alaikum and thank you for your question. He's originally from uh, Pakistan, Ayah Sahib, and he's been studying in the US. And there he has come across um, different, uh, as he terms them, Greek letter organizations. But in effect, he's referring to the fraternities, etc., that exist within different colleges in the US. And he's identified quite rightly that many of these have quite noble causes at their heart. They're often encouraging students to be engaged in philanthropy. They're encouraging social work and social action projects throughout the communities. Um, he also then suggests that there is an element within them, that there's a certain elements of culture we were just talking about that in the previous question, which is based around certain practices which are uh, fueling greater consumption of alcohol, for example. And there's others as well, which um, some as, and let's be quite clear, that these activities are perceived as totally illegal against the law, and, um, but nevertheless may, in some instances, still take place. And Ahad's question is very much down to the perspective that can a Muslim student, can, uh, in his perspective, I suppose there's a personal element, can a Muslim actually participate and join such organizations. And if I could just take the question slightly further, because you could look around anywhere in the world here in the UK, <clears throat> the 
different organisations when you join a university or a college. You go around during the opening induction days and sign up to different, you know, sort of societies that actually, yeah, you want to be part of. You know, it may be cultural, it may be religious, it may be because of a particular interest you have. So these societies, these, you know, exist throughout the world. Tariq Saib, I think it, to the extent that um, we, as far as the, <coughs> the, the overall program of a society or a group of people is concerned, as far as, so long as it is according to the principles of harmony and peace and justice and love and compassion for mankind, mm -hmm. then those are commendable. <coughs> and the Holy Quran, uh, in various parts of the Holy Quran, in so many verses of the Holy Quran, Allah refers to mankind. He says, Ya ayyuhan nas, O ye people. Which shows, just as Jahangir Sahib was saying, that uh, before we are Muslim or before we are the citizen of any country or uh, the adherent of any religion or faith for that matter, we are all human beings. And in that respect, we have this underlying commonality which brings us together. Mm -hmm. Now, if a, a group of people come together and they do that for <coughs> the sake of goodness, then that is definitely permissible in Islam and it is a very good thing to be a part of those groups or societies. Um, I, I, I'm just uh, running through history and, and, I, and I have an example of the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him. Um, 1400 years ago, this is not a new thing, 1400 years ago the Holy Prophet وسلم, was also a part of a society, part of a community that Although it taught religious principles, it was not formed under the banner of religion. And the Holy Prophet was a part of that. And that society was known as the Hilful Fudul, which was a group of men, a group of people who came together and their, their overall program, their, their structure, their, their plan, if you will, was that whenever an individual needs us to establish justice, we will be in the forefront to make sure that justice is administered <coughs> to that people. Because in the Arab society, there was no courts, there was no uh, rulers who you could return to to have justice given to you. And so these noble men came together and said that if anybody requires our assistance mm. in order to uh, receive their right, if they are being infringed upon or if they are being treated wrongfully, then we will stand by the cause of justice and do our best to administer that justice for their sake. Mm -hmm. And we will help the weaker parts of society. Because in the Arab culture, there was this hierarchy of chieftains, mm -hmm. and then of there was very little middle-class people. You were either a part of a noble family, and you had the power to do whatever you wanted, or you were a poor slave who was treated like an animal, mm -hmm. God forbid. And the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, was a part of that group. And he said that, I will do everything in my ability to help in this cause. When the Holy Prophet was given the claim, when he claimed to be a prophet of God after the age of 40 and his responsibilities increased and he was given this responsibility by God to convey the message of Islam to the ends of the earth, which is a, a very daunting task. The Holy Prophet even then, when that responsibility became the center of his life, he said on one occasion that if somebody calls me to help him under the Hilful Fudul, I will still go and fulfill my duty, which I pledged many, many years ago for that sake. So when we talk about these societies, if they are doing good in the world, then there is absolutely no harm in being a part of them. 
But when we talk about that other aspect of uh, illegality or alcohol consumption, those things which are clearly against the teachings of Islam, which are clearly illegal, which are clearly detrimental to an individual at all levels and in all respects, then that is something that we should shun. And that is something that we should abstain from. The Holy Quran is really beautiful in the sense that it gives guidance. Mm. It does not give a list of things of in the sense that this is permitted, this is permitted, this, and this is not, and this is not. Of course, there is general principles of what is prohibited and what is uh, not prohibited. But for specific situations like this, Islam gives a very wonderful overall principle. And it says that anything which is a form of goodness is commendable and permitted in Islam. And anything which takes you away from God, which causes you to infringe upon the rights of other people, which takes you to evil, is something which is prohibited. So in that respect, we can be a part of these societies and make our own choices mm -hmm. on what we, t we are, what we are a part of and what we are not a part of. And just as a final point before I move on to the next question, Jangir Sahib, quite often these organizations, he uh, referred specifically to the Greek letter organizations, they have initiation sort of procedures. So whilst there may be the good and the not so good, if I could frame it that way, to actually join in the first place requires going through various initiations. And sometimes they are reflective of practices which, as I've said earlier, may be deemed illegal anyway, but nevertheless still prevail. I think we all know the answer to that, but I suppose just for completeness, you know, if you're faced with that kind of question, what should one do? Yes, well, it's not just those um, uh, societies, actually, or fraternities. Mm. Yeah, you'll find these initiation ceremonies in many cultures, in particular the tribal cultures. Mm. Um, and we, we know that there are certain people, especially Europeans, who would like to you know, become part of a tribe or something like this. It's like kind of something cultural which they like to do. Mm. But the question is that, is it all right to put oneself through torture to be able to, because that's what it is, mm. basically, um, and to be you know, vilified and, uh, and abased, you know, uh, just to become a member of something, of a tribe or a fraternity or whatever it is. I mean, we, ha we can't let go of, the, of, the, of decency. We have to have decency in all respects. And there are some certain practices like hazing, for example, which are illegal in many countries, including in the United <laughs> States, which is the case here. Um, so obviously no uh, Muslim, and in particular no Ahmadi Muslim, would want to go through that. So if that would be a requirement to get into that society, then of course that society as a, as a whole would have to be shunned. Because at the end of the day, if a society or an association is so low as to start in a certain really, really ugly way, what's it going to be having as principles later on? This surely reflects on the whole understanding of the people who are in this uh, fraternity and it reflects poorly upon them. So I think that that kind of a thing, therefore, should be shunned, if that's the case. Jazakumullah, gentlemen, and my thanks also to Ahad Sahib for his question. Our next question, Azhar Jamal Chaudhry Sahib from Exeter. He writes, and uh, he's, he's a young man himself, and he's, discussed, he's currently uh, studying politics, philosophy, and economics. Uh, PPE, which has often is a preamble to many who perhaps go into the political field. Um, and his question is that Islam teaches us not to be 
superior or inferior in relation to other people. Surely if Islam carries God's true message, our moral standards and teachings should be viewed superior than that of other people. Now it's an interesting question he raises, but religion, if I could start with you, Yasab, on this, always talks about how we find also commonality between people and earlier in the program we talked about we are humans first, as Jahangir Saab so aptly put it. Part of the challenge perhaps with those who sometimes use religion as a means of political sort of justification of actions or as we've seen in its worst kind, the kind of hijacking we're seeing currently of Islam. Actually they forget this central principle of humanity and it's not about establishing superiority but it's about instilling humanity mm. and peace in the world which should be the key drivers of faith. Absolutely. Tariq Saab, when the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him, uh, began to write letters to the various kings of various nations, um, inviting them to Islam and conveying the message of Islam according to the guidance of Allah the Almighty, one of the first sentences that he used to write at the beginning of his letters was that, I call you to speak on those matters which are common between us. Mm -hmm. And um, that's such a beautiful, poignant thing to point out that the Prophet of Islam never began his message with divide or with differentiation or with a superiority or inferiority uh, aspect. He said that we are all people of God and I call you to speak upon those matters between us which are common. And you very rightly point out that religion has many more commonalities than it has differences. And in different times, different prophets of God came. The Holy Quran says that that there has been no nation of the world to whom God Almighty has not sent a prophet for their spiritual, moral, and uh, uh, their physical, all kinds of progress, whether it's physical, moral, mental, spiritual, everything. And those prophets of God came at different times and they came with the message that was required for those people at that time. So. We, we never say that the other religions are all false or God forbid the adherents of all other faiths are going to hell. We always say that there is more commonalities amongst us. And Islam, we believe, is the compendium of all of the good aspects of the various faiths. And as Jahangir Sahib was saying, that's why it's so wonderfully accepted today because it takes into consideration the needs, the spiritual, moral, physical uh, needs of mankind in every aspect, in all the countries of the world, irrespective of race, mm -hmm. irrespective of uh, the countries that they live in. So that is important to point out at the very outset. Now, there's, there's a difference between having a true message which is uh, relevant in today's society and considering yourself to be superior as far as a human being is concerned. Like I just mentioned, we, we don't say that all other faiths are false. They have many aspects which are Islamic principles. So it's one thing to s believe that the message which I follow, the religion which I follow, the, the code of conduct which I adhere to in my moral life and in my worldly life is correct or best for me and it's different to say that I'm better than such and such person. The Holy Prophet never taught that we should flaunt our superiority over other people. In fact, this one man came to, a Jewish man and a Muslim came to the Holy Prophet, peace be upon him on one occasion, and the Jewish man had brought the complaint to the Prophet of Islam. 
And he said, the whole incident was that the Muslim said that the Prophet of Islam is superior to Prophet Moses. And uh, the Jewish man said, no, Prophet Moses is superior to Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. And the, the Muslim man, in his fit of rage, slapped the Jewish man. So that man, the Jewish man, knew that he was going to get justice from the Prophet of Islam. So he came to the Prophet of Islam and complained about the Muslim. And the Holy Prophet of Islam rebuked that Muslim and said that you are not in any position to be speaking about the superiority of one Prophet over another. Your job is to follow the good teachings that I give you from Allah the Almighty. And that, I think, should be the essence of our lives. It should be the principles that we follow. It should be the, the guiding uh, light that we, that we follow. That instead of telling people who is superior and who is inferior, we should just be good human beings and do the best we can to be beneficial members of society. And if, our, if the teachings that we follow are truly superior, Mm. And if we as human beings are better people, then we will attract people to us without even having to say anything to them. Yeah, they will want will to. Judge us. Other yeah. will, others yeah. will judge yeah. us by what we do. So you can go yeah. on and deliver speeches for as long as you want, but people judge you on who you are and what you do. And I think that's how we should live our lives. Um, gentlemen, we're going to move on to our final question, I think, for this program, um, which comes from, appropriately, we're going to end in the UK, from Bushra Mahmoud Sahib. Uh, Saiba, uh, thank you, Bushra Saiba, for your question and my thanks. Perhaps I didn't quite uh, thank Azhar uh, Chaudhry Saib for his earlier question. But Bushra Saiba writes to us um, about uh, Jahangir Saab, particular, and we've seen these without going into the detail, but in essence, we've had situations here in the UK and elsewhere in the world where by certain accusations come to the fore against a particular individual or particular uh, individuals as well in a collective sense which actually are raised after that person has passed away has died or um, is no longer uh, with us whatever the reason for their death and these then come to court some do don't come to court and i suppose bushra sahib is just asking how what's islam's stance on these situations and how should that crime and justice to that uh, alleged criminal be dealt with well, <clears throat> I think that the overriding sense of uh, system of justice is that of God. Mm -hmm. And whether a criminal is punished uh, physically in this world or not, he cannot escape God's uh, grasp. So there's nowhere he can, he can flee to, you know. Everybody has to return to God. Like mm -hmm. we say, uh, this is a, a Quranic verse as well, inna lillahi wa inna ilayhi rajiun. We are uh, assuredly from Allah and we are returning to him. Um, so that's that aspect dealt with. But having said that, <clears throat> with reference to certain cases which came uh, to the fore here in England recently, where certain people were accused of certain crimes post-mortem, so after their death, um, the question, of course, will have to do with uh, uh, what the law of the land says, because uh, as we've already you know, touched upon today, um, our love for our nation also includes the fact that we have to obey its laws. Mm. And if the laws of the land have any provision within them to, um, first of all, uh, kind of give some kind of reparation, uh, affect some kind of reparation in the, in, the, in the form of compensation to the victims of uh, the crime, whether the criminal has left or not, then this would be, of course, something which would be laudable because that would be part of the, their healing process 
and it would you know, go some way at least to removing their suffering. So that would be one aspect of justice which Islam would of course condone. But then there's the aspect of p uh, potential witnesses to those crimes who did not come forward and because they didn't come forward there were many other victims of that criminal and then the law of the land might, might also have provision for, for prosecuting them, for you know, holding them uh, to, you know, to, to account because they didn't reveal uh, information which they should have you know, by law. So Islam would go with all these different uh, circumstances. If, if they help society to heal, if they, if they help society to remember that crimes are punished, then it's, a, it's of course a good thing and Islam would, would, would uh, advise people to, to go down that route. But it all depends on the law of the land. Never are Muslims asked to take the law into their own hands. On the contrary, they do have to um, abide by all the rules and regulations and laws within the country that they're living in at all times. Yeah, I suppose just one final point on that. I suppose if someone has died and they indeed were had committed those particular crimes. We as Muslims, indeed people of all faith, do hold that there's a higher court they'll still be answering to. Yes, and, exactly. And, and that, that shouldn't be, uh, and that should be kept in perspective and in mind as well. Absolutely, yes. And with that, we come to the end of today's programme. I would like to thank our panellists and say Jazakumullah to them for their very detailed and scholarly answers on an array of questions on a variety of different issues. And if you haven't found the answer to your question, you know what to do. Email us on faithmatters at voiceofislam.co.uk.